Well, this morning, I want to turn our attention to a non-traditional Easter text. If you had the privilege of being with us this morning at our sunrise service, Ben did a phenomenal job preaching the narrative of the resurrection, the story of the resurrection. I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm going to preach a non-traditional Easter text. And what I mean by non-traditional, again, is a text that is outside of the gospel's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A text that is outside of Paul's theology of the resurrection, which is contained in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want some good quiet time verses today, go home this afternoon uh, and spend some time bathing in 1 Corinthians 15. It's Paul's theology of the resurrection. Instead, we're going to be looking here at Philippians chapter 3, specifically verses 7 through 11. And for many of you, this is probably a very familiar text. Philippians chapter 3 is oftentimes referred to as Paul's personal testimony. Paul's recounting how he came to know Christ personally and, and, and what the grace of God is doing, how the grace of God is operative in his life. But he connects all of that, interestingly enough, to the resurrection of Christ. Paul connects the grace of God to the resurrection, or the grace of God in his life, to the, to the resurrection power of Christ. Now think for a moment, what would make Paul emphasize the resurrection in his testimony? Do we emphasize the resurrection in our testimony? What would make Paul emphasize the resurrection of Jesus Christ in his testimony? I'll submit to you that it is this. I think Paul understood that apart from the resurrection of Christ, his hope of forgiveness of sin, his hope of eternal life, and any other promise that was made to him was of wishful thinking. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, I would encourage you to go spend some time bathing there this afternoon, Paul's detailed theology of the resurrection. Paul says this, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, if the resurrection did not occur, then our preaching is in vain. Everything that happens from this pulpit every Sunday, everything that happens from every evangelical Bible-believing pulpit on Sunday mornings is in vain. If there was no resurrection. Paul goes on and he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that our our faith is in vain if Christ has not been, been resurrected. He goes on and he says, not only that, but we have been misrepresenting God because we've been testifying, we've been preaching a false resurrection. And then he goes on and he tells us if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are all still in our sin. And lastly, we of all people are most pitied. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means everything. All of Christ's claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, to be the resurrection and the life, to have the authority to forgive sin and to grant eternal life, and a plethora of other promises, every single one of those are empty apart from Jesus' bodily resurrection, his victorious resurrection from the grave. In other words, the entire redemptive enterprise of God is dependent upon the resurrection of Christ. To remove the resurrection from Christianity is to remove the very heart of everything that we believe to be true. To remove the resurrection from Christianity is to remove the heart of everything we believe to be true. Everything unravels apart from Christ's victorious resurrection. So it's fitting that Paul would attribute all that he is and all that he has spiritually 
to the resurrection of Christ. I think that's why Paul emphasizes the resurrection when he's sharing his testimony, when he's sharing about the grace of God and how it is operative in his life. He connects it back to the, tes- or to, to the testimony uh, of Christ's resurrection. Now, the question I want to raise this morning as we reflect on the nature of the resurrection is not, not what proves the resurrection. Uh, there have been many sermons uh, that are aimed at, at proving or validating the resurrection. They all have their place. They're great. There have been many books, volumes, lots of ink spilled uh, over trying to prove the resurrection. Again, they all have their place. But my point this morning is not to try to prove the resurrection, but instead to ask, what does the resurrection prove for us? What does the resurrection confirm for us? What does the resurrection secure and guarantee for us believers who are united with Christ? What does it mean to us that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul in his testimony shares with us five glorious truths of the resurrection that if we know Christ are true of us. Five resurrection realities, you might say. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. If you have the ability, I want to encourage you to stand with us. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, pins the following words. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth or value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, and become like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord our God stands forever. Five points on your outline this morning. Five resurrection realities of every single individual who knows Christ savingly. Number one, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so. The resurrection provides you with the exceeding privilege of knowing Christ. Jesus' bodily, victorious resurrection provides you with the exceeding privilege of knowing him personally and intimately. Look back at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, whatever I had gained, I had counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish or dung in order that I may gain Christ. Friends, we do not worship and serve a dead God. Die he did, risen he is. Risen he is. Jesus is alive today. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. After making purification for sins, that is, after his death, after his resurrection, he, Jesus Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Christ lives and he reigns today. And because of his death and resurrection, he opens himself up to be known by us. Now, it's important that we understand, especially in the culture that we live in today, to to know Christ means to know him intimately. Not just to know facts about him, not just to have have a few verses memorized, not to have uh, grown up in church or to have been a part of this Bible study or to have grown up in Awana or the, the youth program. All those things are great and they plant seeds along the way, but that is not what Paul refers to when he says, I want to know Christ. That's not what Paul's talking about. The knowing that Paul is talking about here is a personal, intimate knowledge of Christ. You can't know someone who's not living in a personal way. If Jesus Christ is still in a tomb far off in the Middle East, we cannot know him personally. You cannot know a person who is not living in a personal way. Again, it's interesting to note here that knowing in verse 8, it's a noun and it's not a verb. It means to know experientially. It means to know personally. It means to know intimately. Let me press the pause button right here. Is that true of you? Do you know him personally? Do you know him intimately? Do you you know him experientially? And is there fruit in your life that would point back to a true conversion? A time in your life where you were born a second time. Born again. Born spiritually. Christ is not only living today, but he's intimately involved in the lives of his people. Listen to what God's word has to say about knowing Christ. John writes about it in John chapter 10. It says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls them by his own name. He leads them out. And when he's brought out all of his own, he goes before them, speaking about Jesus. And the sheep follow him for they know, there's the word again, they know his voice. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own. In my own, they know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father, I lay down my life for my sheep. Do you know the great shepherd? Do you know him? Do you follow him? One of the greatest indicators that you know him is that by his grace you follow him. We're we're not following the ancient writings of a dead deity. We are following a risen king. Do you know him? Later in John chapter 17, John writes, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I want to share with you three brief ways in which the resurrected Christ is personally involved in the life of each believer. Three ways in which we can know Christ today by way of his ministry to us as a result of his resurrection. Three ways in which Jesus Christ is ministering, actively ministering to believers today. Number one, he's our mediator and our great high priest. That's who the resurrected Jesus is to every believer today. That is one of his ministries to us today as he's seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. He is our mediator and great high priest. But what is a mediator? A mediator is one who intervenes between two individuals to restore peace. Is this not what Jesus Christ has done for us? As our our high priest, our great high priest, he mediates between sinful man and a pure, authoritative, holy God. 
Jesus is our mediator in that he is our perfect once-for-all sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Again, let me take you back to Hebrews chapter 1 for just a moment. After making purification for sin, Jesus sat down at the right hand of his Father. Well, what's significant about that? If Jesus is our mediator and Jesus is our high priest, what is the significance of after making purification for sin, that's after Good Friday and after Resurrection Sunday, when Jesus ascended into heaven, when he assumed the, the, the ministry, the ongoing ministry in the life of every believer as mediator and high priest, what is the significance of the fact that he sat down? It's very significant. It's significant because in the Old Testament, the high priest that came before Jesus never sat down. And they never sat down because their work was never finished. But Jesus, our great high priest after making purification for sin, set down. Why? Because in his own words, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus uttered from the cross. Jesus makes himself personally available to all who would come to him by faith, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He'll be a mediator for you between God and man. He'll be your great high priest, but you have to come to him. He's the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one comes to the Father except through him. No one comes to a saving relationship with God except through Christ. He's our mediator and great high priest. That's who he is today the resurrected Christ. That's how he ministers today in the life of every believer. Secondly, he's our advocate. He's not only our mediator and great high priest, but he's our advocate. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That is a ministry of the resurrected Jesus Christ today. He is our advocate before the Father. An advocate, that word, it's a legal term. It's actually derived from the Greek word paraclete, which is how we speak of the Holy Spirit. It means the one who comes alongside. Jesus is our advocate. He's the one that comes alongside. He pleads our case. You see, in legal settings, the advocate is the defender or the counselor who comes to the aid of his client before the judge. Jesus becomes the advocate for every person who confesses their sin and their desperate need for him. He's their advocate before the righteous judge. He becomes for them a perfect advocate who always gains acquittal for those who trust in him. You see, some legal counsel this side of eternity fails. But Jesus never fails to gain acquittal for those who are his. He's our advocate. That is a ministry that he assumes today in the life of every believer. Third and lastly, and this is not a comprehensive or an exhaustive list, he intercedes on our behalf. He's our mediator and great high priest. He's our advocate. 
and he intercedes on our behalf. The writer of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews chapter 7. Consequently, he, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you catch that? He always lives to make intercession for them. One of my... uh, favorite pastors, has this to say. He says, The security of our salvation is Jesus' perpetual intercession for us. We can no more keep ourselves saved than we can save ourselves in the first place. But just as Jesus' power had power to save, he has power to keep us constantly, eternally, and perpetually. Jesus Christ intercedes for us before his Father. And so what does that mean for us who are in Christ today? Well, it means that whenever we sin, in effect, Jesus turns to his Father and he says, put that on my account. My sacrifice has already paid for that. My resurrection has already validated your acceptance of my sacrifice. Paid in full. It is finished. You see, through Jesus Christ, we believers are able to stand in the presence of a holy God, blameless, And with great joy. Let me ask you this, friends. Do you long to know the risen Christ? Is he your desire? Is he your treasure? Is he your hope? Is he your Lord, Master, and Savior? We ought to ask God each day for a fresh and renewed desire to know Christ, to know him personally and intimately because his resurrection has made that privilege possible for us. An old anonymous quote here, I need not journey far, this distant friend to see. Companionship is always mine, he makes his home with me. I envy not the twelve, closer to me is he. The life that once he lived on earth, he lives today in me. You see, Jesus lived in close, intimate fellowship with his disciples during his earthly ministry, but he lives in those who know him savingly today, personally, intimately, experientially. Do you know him? His resurrection secures that privilege for you. Number two on your outline, the resurrection secures Christ's righteousness credited to your account. You say, what's the significance of the resurrection? Well, It gives us the exceeding privilege of knowing Christ, and then it secures Christ's righteousness credited to our account. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice Paul's desire to be found in Christ. The Bible says there's only two places that we can be found, friends. We can either be found in Adam or we can be found in Christ, the last Adam, the second Adam. If you're found in Christ, then you're found in union with Him, with all the blessings that accompany that union. If you're found to be in yourself or in Adam, then you're neglecting the great salvation that has been offered to you, and ultimately you're trying to secure it by your own means and on your own terms. Knowing this, Paul said, I want to be found in Christ. Being found in Christ brings with it the righteousness of Christ. 
that was secured by his perfectly obedient life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. Friends, we were born into this world, physically alive, spiritually dead. We need to be born again. We need to be given new spiritual life. Because as far as righteousness is concerned, we are intrinsically without it. We're bankrupt, poor beggars, apart from God's grace and apart from his righteousness being credited to our account. But Jesus' victorious resurrection secures his righteousness, his perfectly obedient life that can be credited to our otherwise bankrupt account. There's no other way to gain right standing with God apart from Christ. You can't go over him. You can't go under him. You can't go around him. You must go through him. There's not the faintest particle of righteousness that is intrinsically in us. It must be credited to us by Christ if we are to have it. You see, only a person with no debt can pay the debt of another. Likewise, only a person with no sin can pay the sin debt of another. See, Jesus hung on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago and he drank every last drop of God's righteous indignation, God's righteous wrath towards sin so that he could offer his perfect record, his righteousness to all who would believe in him by faith. Notice that Paul doesn't say here that righteousness is gained or righteousness is earned by trying to be good It's not gained by trying to keep or obey God's law. Paul says, look, righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Righteousness comes by faith in Christ. Now, let me connect the righteousness of Christ to the resurrection for you. Listen to what Paul says. Just give me your ears for a moment. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. Paul wrote, If Christ has not been raised then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, in other words, apart from the resurrection of Christ, there is no righteousness available to even be credited to your account. Apart from the resurrection, there is no justification. There's no being declared innocent or righteous, which is what justification means. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, there is no justification. There is no being declared innocent before God. You see what I mean here when I say the resurrection is at the heart of Christianity? It's the core of God's redemptive plan and everything hangs on it. Everything hangs on the resurrection. It's the resurrection that enables us to be partakers of the righteousness that was purchased by Christ's death. Number three, the resurrection demonstrates the power of God in your salvation and sanctification. The resurrection, Christ's victorious resurrection, demonstrates his power in your salvation and in your sanctification or in the process of your spiritual growth. Look at verse 10, at least the first phrase there. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I would submit to you that Jesus Christ's resurrection is the greatest display of his power. Paul said he desired not only to know Christ personally, but he wanted to know the power of Jesus' resurrection. 
And I think as believers, we, we can know the power, we can experience the resurrection power of Christ in two ways. Number one, it's by Christ's resurrection power that we're saved. You see, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, if you've been with us for a while and you've been with us as we studied through Ephesians, it wasn't too long ago before we were studying this fact, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that is at work to give life to our spiritually dead hearts. It's the exact same power of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but by his resurrection power, We were made alive together with Christ. It's by Christ's resurrection power that you are saved. Number two, it's by Christ's resurrection power that you are changed or that you're sanctified. That you grow in Christ's likeness, that you bear more resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul knew that it was the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that changed his spiritually dead heart, that was also at work in him, conforming him and subsequently us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. How significant is the resurrection? Well, it's significant for your salvation, but it's also significant for your daily growth in the Christian life. I'm going to show that to you in just a second from a handful of texts. You see, Paul had come to understand that there was no power for life change uh, in just trying to be good. There was no power uh, for life change in in trying to uh, please God by, by trying to adhere to the law. There's no power for life change in fleshly achievements. There's no power for life change in our human striving. Apart from the death and resurrection of Christ, there's no power to serve or to please God. No power. None. To serve him or even to please him. But there is power in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And that power is made available to each and every one of us. You see, at at your conversion, the moment that you came to know Christ savingly, God gave you the, the deposit of the Holy Spirit, which guarantees the inheritance that is to come. And it is the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in the life of every believer that changes us, that grows us, that causes us to look increasingly like Jesus Christ, that causes us to talk increasingly like Christ, that it causes us to think increasingly like Christ, that, inca- that causes us to be motivated increasingly by the things that would please and honor Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit residing in you. And all that is a result of Jesus' victorious resurrection. I want you to see the connection in God's word between the resurrection power of Christ and the power for you and I as believers to live a sanctified or godly lives. Three texts come to mind here. I want you to get your walking fingers ready. Turn with me first to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that the resurrection is critical. The resurrection is, is pinnacle to our daily growth as believers. This is what Paul says. 
He says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's all conversion language. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. That ends verse 11. Okay, here's the point I want to make. The resurrection power of Christ is the same power that changes and grows you in your daily Christian life today. Look at verses 12 and 13. Right after the resurrection teaching here, Paul says this, Therefore, as a result of, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present the members of your body as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that is at work within you, believers, that you might put sin to death. Second passage that comes to mind. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verses 53 through 58. Here's the resurrection teaching, beginning in verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the resurrection teaching. Look at verse 58. Here's the application for the daily Christian life. Therefore... My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Last text, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5. Here's the resurrection teaching. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. There's the resurrection teaching. Here's the application for the Christian life. Look at verse 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Friends, the resurrection power 
of Jesus Christ is the same power that is at work in your salvation and your sanctification, your daily growth in the Christian life. The exact same power. Number four. The resurrection imparts the blessing of fellowship with Christ. The resurrection imparts the blessing of fellowship with Christ. Look back at verse 10. Second phrase. Paul says, I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, three days ago on Good Friday, on that Friday when Jesus died on the cross, the veil, the temple veil was torn in two. It's important that we know that this wasn't just detail added in the gospel narratives or in the gospel stories just for the sake of detail. The tearing of the veil has massive implications for the life of the believer. You see, the veil that stood there in the temple stood as a constant reminder that that sin renders humanity unfit for the presence of God. It stood as a reminder of the separation between God and man. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. You see, the tearing of the veil at the death of Christ that was on Good Friday symbolized that that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable to God. God accepted His sacrifice. You see, all the sacrifices that came from all the high priests all throughout the Old Testament had had to be rendered over and over and over again. But Jesus' once and for all sacrifice was acceptable to God for all time. And as a result, that temple veil was torn in two. Not just a detail for the sake of detail, but a detail that is critical for us as believers to understand that we now have unhindered access. We now can come into the Holy of Holies. As a matter of fact, the Holy of Holies resides in us by way of the Holy Spirit. And we have unhindered access, unhindered fellowship with Jesus Christ. The tearing of that veil symbolized that all of God's righteous requirements were met and that sin's debt had been satisfactorily paid in full. And now it serves as a reminder that we have unhindered access, unhindered fellowship to God through the sacrificial death of Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we can now draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You see, by by rending the temple veil, God was in effect saying, the death of my son, Jesus Christ, in his death, there is total access to my holy presence. Jesus had come to be the sacrifice of sacrifices, the perfect sacrifice, to end all future sacrifices. The writer of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter 9. He says, he, Jesus, entered Once for all, into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing for us eternal redemption. Verse 26, Hebrews 9, verse 26 goes on to say that he, Jesus, appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it's our union with Christ through his 
through faith in his substitutionary death for us on Calvary's cross and through his victorious resurrection that we might have fellowship with God. Paul said, I want to share in his fellowship. But it was unique fellowship here, a unique sharing in Christ's fellowship. Look look at the text here. Paul says, I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Isn't it interesting? The Christian life isn't the removal of suffering. You know, there are some out there that teach that and that wrongly think that, that Christianity is is just a bed of roses. Just, Just come to Jesus and kiss away all your cares. The Christian life isn't the removal of suffering, it's the removal of the guilt of sin, but not the effects of it. The Christian life is the removal of the effects of sin, but not, or the the guilt of sin rather, but not the effects of it. You see, we live in a sinful world, and as we live in this sinful world, we will be well acquainted with suffering, just as Christ was. Jesus told his own disciples, foxes of the ground have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was beaten, he was scorned. He was pursued unto death. And then finally, he was crucified, killed, and buried. Jesus was well acquainted with suffering. But it's suffering in the Christian life that oftentimes draws us into a depth of fellowship with Christ that wouldn't be possible otherwise. Instead of rejecting suffering, friends, let me encourage you to embrace it. Embrace suffering, but embrace suffering with resurrection hope. Knowing that this world, this Genesis 3 fallen world, is not all that there is. When we look around, when we turn the news on, when we read the newspaper, we're reading and seeing the effects of the curse We're seeing the effects of the fall. And yes, there will be great suffering, even death in this world. But we have great hope in a resurrected Savior that He is coming to make all things new, even you and even me. You must remember that Jesus was the one that said, Cast your burdens on me, for I care for you. The resurrection provides us with the privilege of sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And those are sufferings that God oftentimes uses us to make us look a whole lot more like Jesus. Don't reject them. Press into them. But press into them with resurrection hope. Lastly, on your outline this morning, I wish that I could say much more about each of these points, but here's number five. The resurrection guarantees your future resurrection and eternity with Christ. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ savingly, then his resurrection guarantees your future resurrection and eternity with Christ. Look at verse 11. Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That was Paul's great hope. You see, the resurrection of Christ is the sure pledge of our future resurrection. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have the hope that that this world is not all that there is. There's more, there's better, there's infinitely better. You see, in Christ, as believers, we've already been saved from the penalty of sin. We've already been saved from the power of sin. But we are eagerly awaiting the day when Jesus Christ comes back for his bride and once and for all frees us from the presence of sin. That's resurrection hope. We've been freed from the penalty of sin. It's finished. 
We've been freed from the power of sin. Sin no longer is your master. It no longer has dominion over you. But we have not yet been freed from the presence of sin. And for that, we look forward to the resurrection. As a matter of fact, the whole whole earth is groaning, waiting to be made new. And so are we. You see, the resurrection of Christ is the death of death. It doesn't mean that we won't die physically, but it does mean that we won't die eternally. And this gives us great hope. You see, this removes the fear of death, knowing that when we die, we will pass directly from this fallen world into the conscious paradise of Christ. And there we'll be free from every encumbrance of sin to worship Christ forever. You see, death no longer has a sting. Praise be to God that Jesus Christ was the subject of death's sting for us. Jesus Christ was the subject of death's sting for us who know him savingly. Paul said our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, these sin-riddled, fallen bodies, and he'll transform them to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. You see, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that will raise you from the dead, my friend, if you know Christ savingly. And Jesus Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge of your future resurrection if you know him savingly. You see, Jesus came in humility and he gave himself as a sacrifice for sins and he's going to return in power and glory to claim all the redeemed, the reward for which he died. So brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. His return is as certain as his resurrection. Matter of fact, Luke wrote this. Jesus who was taken up from you, will return for you in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And his return will be to rid the world of every last particle of sin, to make all things new, again, even you and even me. There'll be no more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears, Revelation 21 tells us. And this is why we can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Friends, is this the Jesus Christ that you long to know? Is this the Jesus Christ that you know personally and savingly? If so, his resurrection provides you with the the exceeding privilege of knowing Christ personally. His resurrection secures Christ's righteousness credited to your account. His resurrection demonstrates the power of God both in your salvation and in your sanctification. His resurrection imparts uh, the fellowship between God and man. And his resurrection guarantees your future resurrection and eternity with Christ. Aren't you glad that we serve a risen, ruling, reigning, and soon returning king?